Happy Saturday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? There's so much to celebrate tonight, and I am so excited because tonight I am going to be celebrating this gentleman right here, Scott Shea. I am so excited that you were here tonight because you have this incredible book, All the Leaves Are Brown, celebrating the mamas and the papas. I mean, that song right there basically gives the trajectory of their uh, careers. Uh, and But that's not all. <laughs> and you really delve into it. I don't know when, where, and how you have found the time to do so because <laughs> you, are, uh, you are a family man. You have a pug, and I know that will keep you busy. Yeah, uh, and sure. uh, you are a producer on Sirius XM Radio on the Catholic Channel. Uh, you have been nominated for many documentaries that you've done that have been produced there. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you write this thick book. 
And uh, not only do you show us how they got together, uh, you delve into their lives, dissecting each of their lives, and then you show how it all fell apart. Uh, it's an amazing book. So congratulations. Well, thank you. I never really looked at it that way, but I guess I somehow found the time to squeeze that in there. I'm writing another book right now, so I'm in the middle of that. That So uh, yeah, I got all that. But I am, you know, and the funny thing was when I wrote that book, I was actually commuting into New York City because I wrote it before COVID. Uh, and uh, I was working uh, out of the Sirius XM New York City uh, studios, which I had been since about 2007. And then COVID changed all that and they gave me all this equipment and I can do it all from home now. I can do it more diligently and uh, more effectively. So they let me stay here. So it's probably probably a little bit easier. I used to go down to the studio with a stack of books, you know, as I was writing this. And, uh, you know, a few a few hosts would always like uh, kind of uh, uh, tease me like, you know, boy, you like to read. <laughs> if I had, you know, so. Well, Scott, it's funny that you say that because when I was a kid growing up in South Carolina, and interestingly enough, John Phillips was born in South Carolina. Right. Uh, he was born uh, the same year that my father was born in South okay. Carolina. Uh, he uh, moved to New York in 1961, which was the year I was born. <laughs> so I, I, as I'm reading the book, I'm going, okay, there are these uh, serendipitous moments going yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but uh, my parents used to drop me off uh, at the Conway Library uh, in my hometown of Conway, South Carolina on Saturday mornings. And they would come and pick me up. And I would have, one time they picked me up and I had 35 books to check out. Uh, and uh, Catherine Lewis, our librarian, may she rest in peace, she allowed me to check out that many books because she knew that I was going to be going through them. Uh, I had a great mentor, Florence Epps, I've talked about on, on the show many times, and she instilled in me that uh, the importance of knowing who these people are who went before us. And what I really love about your book is getting a chance to know these people. They literally jump off the pages. I mean, yeah. you've got this background as a producer and the work that you do. Uh, but I was really surprised in learning a little bit about you and doing my research uh, that this was your first book. Uh, and uh, that you, I mean, you are a brilliant writer, first of all. Uh, and uh that you would uh, have you uh, did you keep journals? Uh, had you uh, played around at writing prior to this? No, not really. Uh, really, the the documentaries was the the start. You know, I wrote uh, I wrote scripts for those, and I did a lot of interviewing and note taking, and um, that was really the formation of it. And I really enjoyed it. You know, I really you know I hadn't really done anything for a book since college. You know, when I was writing. Uh, term papers and book reports and research projects. So uh, I guess all that kind of came flooding back. And this was, uh, you know, I really came to really love writing when I was doing the documentaries because I wrote the script for the narrator, Gus Lloyd, who's the host of, of my show. He actually narrated, I believe, all of them except for one. And so I wrote for him. I wrote in his voice. And, uh, you know, after doing about five of these, I was like, well, you know, I mean, this is fun. I, you know, I'd like to make this a little bit more lucrative for myself because, you know, it's not like they paid the extra there to do it at the, you know, the Catholic channel. But, uh, you know, and I said, you know, maybe I should just try writing a book. I, I love reading. I'm an avid reader. And I, um, you know, I think when you, I think everybody's got a book in them, you know, and um, I said, let, let me give this, let me give it a try. And it just, it really started to flow. 
and uh, just kind of write it. It seemed like it wrote itself, you know. It took a couple years, you know, and I, I put it down right uh, right at the end of 2019. I started about 2017, and I put it down uh, about after about two straight years, and that's including research and everything and talking to people. And um, I write a little bit after COVID, maybe if, you know, late 2020 I, or 21, I'm not, I don't even remember. I, I started looking around for an agent. Uh, and then um, a friend of mine who works for uh, another publisher, uh, he's actually the publisher, you know, he, he works in, a, in, he works for another publisher, let's just say that. <laughs> and uh, he, I sent, I sent it to him. He loved it. He, he wanted to get it on his, but his is kind of religious based. And even though they were starting a secular uh, uh, imprint, thought it might still be a little bit too sex, drugs, and rock and roll for, for a religious. Uh, well, I was going to ask you this, and you know, uh, uh, are you Catholic? Uh, because you do work for the Catholic Network. Oh yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. So, and you've been with Sirius XM Radio. Uh, did you start out at the Catholic Network, or did you? No, have- no. I started out in uh, road dog trucking, believe it or not, uh, and I uh, was there for a couple of years. I also worked on. The Foxhole, Jamie Foxx. I worked on uh, Sirius XM Raw Dog, uh, or yeah, Raw Dog, which is their comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I had let to my, uh, you know, I had said something to my boss at the time, which has probably never ever been <laughs> said. I always joke about it. It's like, hey, if there's ever ever in, an opening at the Catholic Channel, let me know. I might be interested in that, you know. And good, uh, sure enough, an opening came. And I jumped over there. I worked on a one show for you know a few months, and then then the morning show kind of uh, uh, came available to, and was presented to me, and and I jumped on that because uh, you know better hours, and I got to see my family and stuff like that. So, uh, and I've been with uh, Seeds of Day with Gus Lloyd uh, now since 2011 or since 2012. 2012, yeah. Now you've uh, done uh, shows on uh, the the Pope and uh, Mother Teresa and mm-hmm. uh, you know Catholic centric shows uh, essentially uh, right. very different from this book I might add yeah uh, but, uh, <laughs> you uh, have a love of music uh, you know I asked for a photograph of you as a five year old okay. and there's a reason for this you may have thought you know why what in the world uh, here you are you're on the right side that's uh, right. You look the same, right? Um, and the reason I asked for this photo, because to me, the five-year-old self is the purest self. It's before life begins to tell you who you should be, who you shouldn't be, yeah. uh, and whatever path you're going to go down. Um, and I truly get the sense from you um, that you are truly, uh, and it's all written in the pages uh, of your acknowledgments. Uh, it jumps off the page. Uh, you truly are a family man. It jumps out in the picture. Uh, I met your father uh, at the book signing uh, yeah. and uh, had a, a good chance to talk with him for a little bit. Uh, so I know all your secrets, by the way. Scott. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but uh, tell us a little bit about this five-year-old. And I know that you have said in the little uh, mini bio that you sent to me that you uh, love all kinds of music from the 1920s on through, I guess, the 90s. Um, uh, and that you uh, read all kinds of biographies on mm-hmm. uh, different music. Uh, you loved the Mamas and the Papas, obviously, uh, but you were looking around and you couldn't find any books, so you decided to write your own. Good for you. Right, yeah. Well, it's funny, with that picture, I could say it's a good thing. That's It's good to have mothers who are on Facebook, right? Because... <laughs> Because that's where I was able to pull that one for you. Um, Yeah, you know, my family was very big into music. I mean, not many of us play, 
some of us. My grandmother was a very good pianist. Uh, my brother plays guitar very well, and all his kids are into music. Um, I have an uncle who's a very good guitarist, and he actually, my uncle, probably the uh, the closest to actually, you know, going with it at, at a career. He had like a jazz combo in the '70s, and my aunt sang on it, uh, but you know that fizzled out, and life kicked in. But we loved listening to the radio. Um, we I grew up in uh, the shadow of New York City. I guess kinda. I was in Somerset County, New Jersey, which is you know like forty five minutes from New York City, uh, and uh, we listened to the radio. A lot. I mean, when I was uh, really little, we you know, we moved up back up to New Jersey, with Z100 and WPLJ, and <clears throat> and then uh, I remember, you know, my like most dads, my dad was not big on the the current top forty, right, of the early eighties. I guess this would be late seventies, mm-hmm. early eighties, and um, <clears throat> so his compromise was we'll, we'll put the oldies station on, right. WCBS FM, and they had all the jocks from when he was a teenager at WABC, like Cousin Brucey and Dan Ingram, yeah. you know, and uh, uh, Ron Lundy and Harry Harrison, and um, and I loved it. It's just like I fell in love with it, you know. This, and you know, I remember also around the time he we got a VHS player for the first time, and I think the first movie he went out and rented was American Graffiti. So you know, it was just a for for a long time for me. It was the fifties, fifties, fifties. You know, I love I love fifties music. I still do. It's music so close to my heart. Um, you know, and then also you know, listening to the modern stuff too. I love the you know, I love eighties music. I love listening to it. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, I'm a big fan of, and uh, also country music. Uh, and you know, I, I I could even tell you, I love Gregorian chant. So I guess. My music love stems back to probably like the fifth century, right? <laughs> you know? well, I'm a little older. I'm an, I'm older than you, and I remember uh, I growing up Saturday mornings. Uh, the the radio was always on in our house, and the wonderful thing about radio is it played every genre of music. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just. I mean, I'm a big Sirius XM fan, and uh, but each uh, it's all niche music now, right? Yeah, but you know, even when you listen to like the Sirius XM '60s Gold or '50s Gold, you're hearing a lot. You're hearing a pretty good mix of stuff there. You know, you're hearing you're hearing pop and and early classic rock. You're hearing rhythm and blues. You're hearing soul. You're hearing you know Motown, and you're hearing like Frank Sinatra. You know, and, and it's just you know it was a it was a really creative mix back then, um, and I don't think people really even realized it at the time because I think they didn't you know. I think they kind of took it for granted. And then, you know, I think as time went on and, you know, yeah, taste got a little bit more disparate. Um, you know, that's when the niche thing kind of uh, kind of kicked in. And this guy over there has got his music and the guy up the street's got his, you know, and and, and never the twain shall meet, you know. Or, but, uh, you know, I think music is a big uh, it, it, it brings people together. You know, I like, uh, you know, I have on my uh you know, my father's a very, I would say he's a very politically conservative guy. My father-in-law is a very politically liberal guy, but they love doo-wop, man. <laughs> they both love doo-wop. Yeah, love doo-wop. Uh, well, you know, I will say this, that uh, regardless of what side you're on politically, uh, music brings us all together. It really does. Uh, More than know, anything, I think. That's the one thing that uh, when people come together, audiences can sit together in a room and forget about your political uh, differences mm-hmm. and just enjoy music. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and of course, it was a time where, uh, you know, you could uh, disagree. Uh, and I wish that we would get back to that. And, For sure. uh, 
Let's hope that we're going to go in that direction. Uh, but what was it about? Uh, we're going to talk about your book, and I really want to talk about your process. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, as I said, the way that you dissect this book is just amazing. And uh, I just want to know how your mind works. Uh, I want to get in there. Uh, but uh, what is it about the mamas and the papas that uh, you uh, are uh, gravitated to? Because, first of all, how long did it take you to write the book? About two years, you know, total, yeah, two, two, two and a half years. If you factor in writing, and you know, I had a dead once. Once I got signed, I had a deadline to finish it, so <laughs> I took my time with that. And I only had a, ch a chapter and an epilogue to finish, so yeah. So I'd say about two, two between two and two and a half years. What was the jumping off point for you? What was the light bulb moment where you said, "I've got to write this book"? I, I think when I realized that there wasn't really anything out there written about him, like in the twentieth century. Uh, which I found fascinating. I was like, here's a group that's still still pretty popular. I mean, you hear Monday, Monday and Monday night football ads, you know, that's I right. mean, and California dreaming is everywhere. Uh, I just heard today, I heard a commercial had go where you want to go on it by the mamas and papas, just like brand new commercial. And it's like, how, you know, and how are these people not even being talked about? And I thought, well, maybe the Mackenzie Phillips allegations against John, um, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, she accused, uh, you know, her father of having, uh, of raping her the night before her wedding when she was 20 years old. And then they both had a, a, a consensual sexual affair for 10 years, but that was in 2009 that those came to light. And, and like the last book written on them was like 2000, 2001, you know? And so there's even time before that. So I think it just kind of slipped. They just kind of slipped through the cracks there because people like to read about or write about the Beatles or Bob Dylan and, and Rolling Stones. And those are all great subjects, but there's, you know, I think so it leaves those other groups to fall through the cracks. So I think once that hit me in the head, I was like, and I knew their story, you know, I'm, you know, anybody who's heard Creaky Alley knows their story, you right. know, and. But there uh, are, you know, it's interesting because in addition to reading the book, I went on YouTube and there's so much out there. And mm -hmm. there's one particular uh, YouTube clip where the uh, the host even says at the beginning, there are so many conflicting stories uh, about the mamas and the papas yeah. uh, that it took him forever to try to dissect this. And as I was listening to it, I was trying to compare it to your book. Uh, so, uh, but uh uh, and I'm, you know, and there were a few errors there too. Uh, but as you uh, were beginning to, how do you decipher, uh, you know, when you're writing your book, you want to be as accurate as you possibly can. And depending on who you are speaking to, you want to cross every T, you want to dot every I. Uh, how do you make sure that you were getting the accuracy that you want to get to tell the most truthful story that you can possibly tell? I mean, I guess you can never really be 100% sure, but, you know, you kind of got to factor in life and how life works and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, put yourself into that situation and see what would be the, the most uh, logical outcome, you know, I think. Uh, kind of like cast being hit on the head with tubing. That's kind of like the the biggest kind of fallacy <laughs> out there. And it's you like... Tell anyone about that or... Yeah. Well, you know, my wife's a registered nurse and I, I was like, is it possible for somebody to get hit on the head with tubing and their octave range to increase? And she just said, no, <laughs> you know, so uh, it's just like, I'm you know, it's I'm a senior and if it works, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I yeah. just don't think that's a, I mean, if that's so it's, I think that's a medical miracle, not miracle, not an anomaly. 
Um, so it's just kind of like things like that. It's like, you know, well, yeah, I can't imagine that that really happened. It's probably more that it made John feel better. Who don't know, uh, she claims that when she was hit on the head uh, with this metal pipe, that uh, all of a sudden she was able to hit these higher octaves and it really increased her singing ability. So I, I think it made John feel better. Uh, because you know he didn't want her in the group, and then I think it, I think in a way it maybe might have brought them a little close to have something kind of in, uh, maybe a lie in common, you know, that they could they could uh, you know, and they all swear it's true in every interview you see. It's like that, that can't be true. I'm sorry, it just didn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Like, you can get hit on the head, and it in- increases your vocal octave range. It just so yeah, so you know, it, it, I'm sure there's other examples. I can't. Like, well, you know, uh, another example would be, I know um, when they wrote, when John and Michelle wrote California Dream, and they wrote it like in 1963, when John was still a folk musician, uh, and they were living in Greenwich Village, and she said that they walked to St. Patrick's Cathedral in like like 10 degree weather, right? Well, I mean, St. Patrick's Cathedral is the one that we know is up on Fifth Avenue and, and 49th Street. So she would be a popsicle by the time she got up there. But there's old St. Patrick's Cathedral on Mott Street in um, in the Greenwich Village, which is a very short walk away from where they lived and most likely where they ended up uh, going into, stop into a church they passed along the way, you know, to get warm and, and things like that. So, and I actually, you know, I, I remember going down there a few times and kind of walking that path and uh, going to where they lived and what, you know, you can cut through like Washington Square Park in that area. It's, it's a very logical assumption to think, you know, they, I'm sure they, there's no way she walked 40 New York blocks, you know, in the freezing cold with a, with a, you know, a, a sweater over a tank top when it's like, you know, 10 degrees outside. So um, it's more, it's more logical that she did that. So you gotta, you know, you, those things come into play quite often. Well, was it your documentary background that uh, had you go way back? Uh, you really go into the family history uh, before we even get to John right. uh, at the beginning of the book. Uh, we get a real strong sense of who his parents were, mm-hmm. uh, their, uh, you know, their background, uh, the military life that they had, uh, you know, and the fact that he was born, uh, you know, in Paris Island and then, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his upbringing, uh, we really get that, you know, instead of uh, starting out with how the career began and all of that, was that uh, your reasoning for going back that far? A little bit. Um, my, you know, Peter Ames Carlin is is kind of like a, a, a hero of mine. He's a writer and he did a book on Brian Wilson and he did that where he went back and traced Brian Wilson's ancestry, the Wilson family. Um, where they, I think they came from like Wisconsin or some, somewhere in the Midwest. And, uh, they moved, uh, they moved to the West, I think during the gold boom, or maybe it was, uh, during the California gold rush or, you know, when, when, or whenever Oklahoma people, the dust bowl migration, and they lived on the beaches in Cal, you know, in, in Los Angeles or say, you know, for, for, for a few, for a long time, you know, until they, they set up their homestead. So that was kind of, uh, and, and I did, you know, the book started off as a John Phillips biography, which is why it leans John heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, really it's John's, it, it leans heavy in the same way a Beach Boys book leans Brian Wilson heavy because, you know, he's the creative force. Like without Brian Wilson, there's really no Beach Boys. Without John Phillips, there's 
really no mamas and the papas. I mean, you had Cass and Demi were great singers, but it was John's vision. It was John's ability to write enduring melodies and, and, um, and to, to just kind of put all in and, and great lyrics also. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I, tra- I really traced the, the, the history of John, um, because I really wanted to do a, I wanted to do a biography on him, but as I was writing it, the story of the the four of them just really overpowered the book. And I was like, if I went on to keep writing, you know, after they broke off and just go writing about John, this, this book will be 800 pages, you know? (laughs) So I was like, you know, this is probably a good stopping point. And, you know, just to really kind of cover the life of the band and, and to get into the others back backgrounds as much as I could. Once you started to write the the book, what was your process? How were you able to go about getting the interviews that you got, and uh, and did those interviews lead to other interviews? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, you're very trustworthy in terms of uh, uh, what you put on the written page. So, uh, did you share with others what you had written so far? Uh, no, not really. I. Um... I, I just reached out, you know, being a producer in radio, I, I have to reach out to people a lot. I have to cold call. And, you know, I, I was in sales before I was in radio and I, I was a terrible salesman. <laughs> so, uh, and they, they had, you had to cold call a lot, especially when you're new to something. Uh, but I think that really set me up to be a good producer because I, I was able to, you know, I have no problem cold calling and it's easier. It's much more rewarding to say, hey, I'm calling out to you because I want to have you come on the radio. People are usually a little more receptive than, hey, I want to sell you life insurance, you know. That's true. <laughs> so um, uh, and um, so I just found I was able to find um, certain certain people I started with, like Dick Weissman. He was in the journeyman with John and uh, he's still alive. He's still you know very active in in music. He's very he lives in colorado and he's very involved with the folk music community out there and he had a website and i found it i found a um i found a uh, email address for him and i just reached out to him told him what i was doing um and same thing with pat Lacroix, who was in uh, denny's folk group in the early 60s he's he's still going and uh, very lucid and uh he's a photographer and uh, a very successful one and had a website so i reached out to him and was able to get in touch with Jill Gibson, who replaced Michelle for a little while there in the summer of 1966. It was Lou Adler's girlfriend. And, um, you know, and, and, and believe me, I was surprised they got back to me because I wasn't attached to a, a publisher or an agent or anything. You know, I was just like I was just some random guy out of the blue. But, you know, I think they enjoyed our don't you feel? I mean, Scott, first of all, excuse me for interrupting, but don't you feel that uh, they want their story to be told? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think, I think that's ultimately what got, uh, what, you know, what, what, uh, interested them. Um, you know, I've, uh, I, yeah. And I, it's funny cause I don't think in all the books I'm, I know the oral history of the Mamas and the Papas has have some contributions from Jill and Dick and, but none from Pat. And I think, you know, I, I think they wanted to have, uh, felt a little better having somebody tell their perspective of things too. And, and even Pat, Pat LaCroix sent me this really nice thing that he had written. I don't know, a long time ago of his experiences with the, with the Halifax three and, and touring with Denny and meeting John and Michelle. And he sent that to me and that was, uh, that was really big help, uh, you know, to kind of bring that era 
to people, you know, a little bit more in depth because I think that's an era, the folk music era, that was is a critical period of the mamas and the papas. Um, and it's a really foundational one. And, um, you know, kind of led to their sound and, and uh, how they were as musicians. So I don't think that, you know, it's been, it's been written about in a lot of books, but I don't think it's been written about very in depth, if you know what I'm saying. So just to hear like stories of, of them on the bus, you know, going through uh, during this height of the civil rights movement and being in Mississippi, I, you know, I can't imagine for them, you know, you know, a traveling group of folk musicians that was, you know, they're easily mistaken for freedom riders all the time, which they weren't, uh, they weren't greeted uh, too well, too often uh, in that, in, in that area of the country in that time, uh, during that time period. So um, it was, uh, it was kind of neat getting, uh, getting all that perspective, you know, and, and, and Dick Weissman, he just knows about, you know, he's very close with John. He was very close with him. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, you know, had their, periods where they didn't talk for a long time but he knows everything there is to know about john phillips's early life so uh you know he's kind of like a, a dictionary on him or an encyclopedia so he was able to really give me some some really good depth. still is too i wish there's something you know he's he's he emails me every now and then and he says oh by the way i should have told you about this i was like <laughs> yeah uh, i wish he told me that when i was writing it i could use that one well as you're writing this book you're you're essentially living with these people they're they were oh yeah it's not fictional people these are real people uh and you again want to bring them to life for all of the us the readers uh what surprised you the most uh something that you did not realize about each of these four individuals coming together to create this magical music what surprised me uh reading the book i didn't realize that all of this incredible music was un, uh, was within a three four year span yeah and yeah that the way i didn't realize that yeah that's surprising uh there's a, there's a like I, you know you realize that like all of john phillips's childhood friends were like hoods you know and so it's that was pretty surprising um you because when you look at him you don't think that doesn't look like a guy who you know who, who uh who hung around with um you know fonzie and everything back in the day um but uh really there's like the depth of the involvement in the monterey pop festival uh you know which we're right now we're in the midst of celebrating yesterday was the uh the the 16th was the uh anniversary 56th anniversary day one today is the 56th anniversary of day two so and just you know how quickly that was thrown together really in two months or or more than really uh, is is how and for something and to come off the way it did i mean it is completely revered it's considered the first real rock and roll festival because it was kind of the first one that was put on by by musicians for musicians and for fans you know for music fans not necessarily you know teeny boppers and radios what is you know the one thing they were trying to avoid when they put that together was it being a, a dick clark caravan of stars you know which nothing against those i mean those are great shows but I think they wanted to be a little bit more serious. Um, also, you know, the way that they almost a couple times, they almost fractured really from the start. I mean, you know, uh, Michelle's promiscuity was, uh, you know, even, you know, you'd known about it, but it's like, wow. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's like, here she is with Denny. And then John finds out about that. And right after they sign a contract with Dunhill records and uh, this thing almost just implodes before it even starts and then right again, uh, again um, with uh, 
during the sessions for the second album when it comes to light that she's having an affair with Gene Clark and yeah, which leads to her temporary termination, which, you know, at the time they thought, okay, she's gone, you know, I'm, uh, it's it, John's like, it's either her or me, you know, and they, they needed John. So uh, to, to ease his, uh, his mind and, and get it clear his head, they agreed to, uh, to fire her by, by letter, which, you know, in retrospect is a really cold way to go about it, but mm-hmm. I can, I can understand the feeling, you know, when you feel Don't like you think they did that out of fear. I'm sorry. I did. I, I believe that that happened out of fear. You know that letter. Oh yeah. Well, for I would say for uh, for Cass and Denny, yeah, I would say you know we don't want to lose John, and you know, and, and you know, no offense against Michelle. I mean, she's a, she's a very talented actress and, and mm-hmm. she's a beautiful woman, and did very well in modeling. But she wasn't the you know, I mean, if, if you're faced with losing John Phillips or Michelle, you, you're going to kick Michelle out every time because you know she was, you know, average singer and, you know, probably the, the definitely the easiest to, to replace in the band. But even then it brought problems because I, like I say in the book, they brought in Jill Gibson, who is, a, you know, an ex model, a beautiful blonde who could sing who had, you know, her, she was Jan Barry from Jan and Dean's ex-girlfriend. She's very musical, uh, but she just didn't fit. The, the, the mamas and the papas was an experience, you know, it was, it was a lived, shared experience, and I think after a couple months, they're like, you know, we got to bring Michelle back because she's one of us. She went through all this with us, you know, with the, the folk music scene and the journeyman and the new journeyman, and you know, going to the Virgin Islands and traveling from New York to San Francisco in a in a you know rental car, <laughs> you know. So you want people to buy the book, and I'm going to put up the, you know all the links for this uh, on the YouTube channel, but. Uh, uh, so I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but mm-hmm. if you can uh, take everyone to that period in the Virgin Islands, because that was a real crucial moment uh, in the book and what happened there. First of all, uh, this idea, I can only imagine being a fly on the wall uh, with these four uh unique people Mm -hmm. uh, with their unique personalities living under the same roof and being together 24 7 uh the it's difficult being an artist on your own trust me uh but (laughs) bringing four egos together who were trying to create uh this art together and dealing with the dynamics of relationships, broken relationships, uh, trust issues, all of those things. Uh, it was truly like a, a, a perfect storm for everything that could possibly go wrong. And yet for three years, this roller coaster ride mm-hmm. that four of them are on, uh, it's just, and like I said, in your book, you, the way that you maneuver through all of this is unbelievable. <laughs> Well, that's born out of that's just from, you know, I have such a deep understanding of the music scene from back in those days because I've really listened to it and studied it, studied it from the time I was about eight, nine years old, you know, and uh, and and I'm 48 now. So that's that's a good close to 40 years. Um, And just, uh, you know, studying just the musical trends and the music from back then and and. And everything that that was a real help and just you know i i kind of went in knowing a lot of of uh the the peaks and the valleys of of all the various different uh, groups and musical trends back in then um but you know you know going to the virgin islands was something they did 
before they were even famous. Uh, I mean, they they had been in the Journeyman and the Halifax Three, and they all received a and Cass was in the Big Three, and they all received a degree of notoriety and fame. It wasn't huge though. It's not like everybody had a journey name your favorite Journeyman song. You know, it's like it, n- nobody the journeymen were well received on college campuses and stuff, but they, they didn't sell records. So uh, when, when the Beatles came along and really kind of eviscerated the the folk music, the movement, because there were so many young people, young musicians like John Sebastian and David Crosby and Zalianovsky and Jim McGuinn and all these uh, young guys who played uh, folk music. Um, and, you know, they, they kind of went to folk music because, the, the rock and roll they had loved uh, from when they were younger, you know, had kind of gone a little bit corporate, you know, it wasn't really Elvis and Chuck Berry and, and Bill Haley anymore. It was, and little Richard, it was kind of Bobby V and Paul Anka and, and uh, Bobby Rydell. And I, I, I love all those artists, you know, but it, I think it had gotten a little bit too corporate and folk music kind of captured the zeitgeist because there was, you know, it, it was kind of folk music was kind of a, it was it had a reputation for being kind of on on the on the edge uh especially with uh people with communist sympathies or left-wing ideal ideals which you know suited the rock and roll community very well later on you know but um uh it it uh i think they they the people it captured that that kind of rock and roll zeitgeist that was mm-hmm. present in the mid 50s so they all jumped over to that and uh, but I think once the Beatles came, everybody's like it kind of rekindled their love, like because the Beatles kind of brought rock and roll back to its kind of bare bones and and everything. And and, and uh, so they went to the, the Virgin Islands to kind of figure out what what their next step was. You know, they all wanted to do rock and roll music, Zal, uh, 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 Denny and and uh, Michelle. And I think even and definitely even Cass wanted to do that. But John was very uh, he was very obstinate. He wanted to stay with folk music. So, you know, they all went to the Virgin Islands to kind of clear their heads and figure out what they wanted to do. And uh, that's kind of where they got John interested in in rock and roll by uh, playing him. uh, They went to that club that they played at Duffy's, um, which is all mentioned in Creaky Alley. Uh, they played a Mr. Tambourine Man, which had just come out by the birds, you know, and that was really kind of an eye opening moment for him. Right. And um, uh, he was like, yeah, OK, I see what we can do with this. You know, rock and roll can be can be really can be sophisticated, you know, and, um, I, you know, he he wasn't a big fan of the Beatles, but he liked at that time he was and he became one. But uh, the, I think the birds really turned him on to it. So. You know, when they got back to the States, that's uh, what they set out to do. And, uh, you know, I, I think John always had an ego, you know. And uh, Well, I was just about to say, uh, he also had uh, uh, huge control issues. Uh, right. And uh, this was not, uh, you know, a spoiler alert, uh, you know, a collaborative effort. No, no, for sure. You know, he... Um, he did have control. He, you know, he was probably the most talented in terms of uh, he was definitely the most talented musician in the group. It wasn't the most talented singer. Cass obviously was. So it was a beautiful blend of of his uh, ability to arrange and craft and write great songs. And, you know, John was very good at bringing uh, like he could take you and me and, and, you know, grab one other guy off the street and make us sound good. 
you know, he'll even though none. Of, I don't know if you can sing, Richard. I, I can't. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I'm a singer. Yes. So you can. So so he he would base it around you. You would be the star, but then he would find me and this other guy how we can compliment you, you know, in a in a in a in a good way, and and turn this into a singing combo. And and when you have when you have somebody like Cass Elliott and Denny Doherty and even Scott McKenzie and the Journeyman, it makes it uh, that uh, that that much better. So uh, and he knew it, you know, John knew it. So he 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 had developed quite an ego even before um, they were they were popular. And then you know when he does does become popular, you know that was really kind of his undoing because he couldn't really manage it. He kind of rested on his laurels there for really the second half of the the Mamas and the Papas tenure. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, dynamics uh, between him and Denny um, regarding uh, cast coming into the group? Uh, because that was a real uh, turning point on so many levels. Yeah, well, John didn't want Cass in the group at all. I mean, he had this image of them being like Peter, Paul, and Mary, mm -hmm. right? It was a trio, and there wasn't any room for a fourth person. And Denny and Cass were very close. Uh, she was in love with him. She had first They had first met when she was in the Big Three and he was in the Halifax Three, and uh, the big three were performing really for the first time at uh, the bitter end, Fred Weintraub's bitter end there in Greenwich village. And then he was walking down the street and uh, you know, just kind of taking in uh, just, just the environment all the sights and all the sounds and the smells. And he heard her singing. I mean, who, you know, a lot of people heard her singing, but he's like, Whoa, who, who's that? You know, and she's singing folk songs. So he's like, okay. So he goes in and checks her out and, you know, he's a young, handsome guy. And uh, Cass spotted him pretty quickly. You know, they, they over the next couple of days, they got to know each other. And, and she just fell in love with him. Um, and, um, you know, he liked her very much. He, you know, he, he the, it was unrequited love. He didn't love her, but he liked her as a friend. He loved her. He, you know, she had a very vivacious and uh, intoxicating personality. And she took a lot of people in. A lot of people really liked her, you know. But and he, unfortunately, and you all just put it out there, he couldn't get past her weight issue. Right. Yeah. Which that that was often the case, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you know, and it's a shame because you know when you look at this, and I've got some photographs that I want to share here, sure. um, because they are very much. You know, a product, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I want to talk about Cass for just a moment. Mm -hmm. She, you know, from Baltimore and uh, uh, she lost, uh, I can get it for you wholesale, to Barbara Streisand. Mm -hmm. and I heard an interview with Barbara Streisand many years ago. Um, and she, you know, uh, it, it was her singing that really put her on the map. Uh, she w had trouble getting acting jobs at one time because it was the uh, aesthetics of her looks. Uh, and to me, she's one of the most beautiful women on the planet. Right. Uh, and, but there are certain people who had a certain way of the way they thought she should look on film and television and look at the career that she's had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the, um, she came along at a time uh, when the clubs in Greenwich village, uh, there were scouts that were going around looking for talent for, uh, uh, these variety shows that were mm -hmm. all filming in New York, like the Ed Sullivan show and uh, the Merv Griffin show and all these other shows. The Tonight Show was in New York at that time. And, and I do believe that it was because of those shows and those clubs uh, being in New York at the same time that really allowed these 
groups of these stars uh, to become bigger stars. Yeah. And uh, so just continue to talk about Cass Elliott and John as I pull up a few of these photographs of uh, some of their television appearances and the work that they were doing at the time. Sure. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, so, so Denny, you know, he, he, he had worked with Cass previously when, when both of their um, folk groups, uh, when they split up and they, they wanted to make rock and roll music, you know, and uh, in response to the Beatles and, and they put together this group called the Mugwumps and they really were uh, that first response to it. I kind of liken them to Doolittle's Raiders, you know, in World War II when uh, it was one of the first strikes the, the Allies had against, or really the Americans had against Japan after the after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. It wasn't very effective, but uh, it kind of, uh, it showed that we were doing something. And that, that was kind of like the mugwumps. It was, you know, it was really the first time folk music was uh, electrified and recorded. And um, they didn't, you know, they recorded enough songs to fill an album, but the, only one single was released and the album was scrapped and wasn't released until after the Mamas and Babas became famous. But so, you know, Denny loved working with Cass. He knew how talented she was and how, how, um, how, uh, what she could lend to a group. And uh, John, he had this vision of, of Peter, Paul and Mary. Uh, and um, it took some, it took really uh, a producer from uh, California, Los Angeles named Nick Vanette, who said, uh, you know, he, first of all, he loved the way the four of them looked together. You know, he had, you had tall, skinny John and, and short, plump, fat, uh, short, short, plump, short, plump cast. Uh, and, um, and then you had a beautiful Michelle and good looking Denny. And it was, and, you know, they, they were de dressed like hippies for that time, which wasn't chic. It, you know, they looked like homeless people to, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, to the average person back in those days, uh, we, you know, and uh, then when he heard him sing, He's and like, she has the move. I mean, she had the moves. Oh yeah, she did. Yeah, she could move. I mean, she could. She was very light on her feet. And um, when he heard him sing, it's like, okay, no, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear what the three of you sound like. I like the the way the four of you sound. So he didn't. They didn't end up signing with uh, Nick um, and his his label. But the the, the next day, they they uh, you know performed for Lou Adler at, at the Western Recorders in the in the confines of the studio where. You know the the acoustics of their sound were you know even magnified ten times you know and and there was just no going back at that point so John was really kind of backed in and you know I think it, I, I think he had accepted it you know at that point okay you know we can we can do this you know but I think uh, definitely on a level he resented it you know and he, I think he felt like he had a a grasp over her you know because because this was his group and he let her in. Uh, Lou Adler, for those who don't know, is one of the, I mean, the top producers. And uh, if you got him on your side, you you had made it. Uh, that was, the, it was the, the ultimate goal in this business. Yeah, he was the uh, Clive Davis of the West Coast, I would say. Oh, just amazing. Uh, so uh, after Monterey, uh, they ended up going their separate ways. Um, and, uh, but they did come back uh, to do, uh, th there were a couple of, compilation albums they put together and they did do one more album together yeah they did well they you know after monterey they released uh the you know the, the titles of their albums weren't the greatest you know the first one is great if you can believe your eyes and ears then it's the mamas and the papas and deliver that's a good title and then the fourth album was the papas and the mamas um so and it's you know it's a good album it's it's not great uh it's definitely not their best it's in, in that late in that 1968 world, it was hard to sing 
and, you know, quartet harmony, you know, and be cool. So um, it just kind of, it just kind of fizzled out. They didn't really say we're done. We're not going to record anymore. This is over. This experiment. So they just kind of went their separate ways. Cass signed a solo deal because Dream of the Little Dream of Me was very well received. It wasn't a huge hit. It, it, I think it peaked at number 12, but over time it became a bigger hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, really John and Denny and Michelle, Michelle didn't really record at all. She was more into acting. John recorded, but then that just kind of petered out because he just was really getting deeper into drugs. And and Denny, the same thing with, I think one of the most tragic things is Denny's lack of a solo career. I mean, he's such a great vocalist. And and then Cass had this really thriving career. And at least in the beginning, she got big record deals. She moved over to RCA. Well, we had that major debacle in Las Vegas. That- right, yeah. But fortunately, that wasn't... That didn't harm her too much because no. she had a rock and roll audience, and at that time, rock and roll audiences didn't go to Vegas. Mm-hmm. You know, she failed amongst the middle age set, which she could survive. You know, so, um, so, but you know, her music, you know, she really needed John. Like her music, her solo music is good, but it's not. You know, nobody works the magic with her the way John Phillips did. You know, the way he was, he really caught the the best of her and gave her, you know, she really sang his songs very, very well. And uh, so, you know, in 1971, they're getting their, you know, they, they're contractually obligated to do another album that they had all kind of forgotten about, you know, cause mm-hmm. they are all kind of caught up in the late sixties and early seventies zeitgeist. And um, so, you know, they get a letter saying they're going to be sued for a million dollars. That's, you know, $250,000 each, which, None of them could really afford. You know, nobody wanted. Oh, to, oh. None of them wanted to part with. I'm sure they could afford it, but they would probably be a lot broker after that. Um, but uh, so they put this uh, this album together. Uh, People like us, they called it, and it was really kind of thrown together very quickly. But I think it's a. I, I really like the album a lot. I know it gets uh, kind of uh, lambasted or poo pooed by fans and music fans from that era. Uh, I the problem was the songs were good. They were very well written songs with really good arrangements. And John updated their sound. He didn't go back to Western recorders or some other place in uh, where you know uh, in in uh, California where a lot of these hits had been done uh, with the same musicians with the Wrecking Crew group of musicians that he'd used. Yeah. He went to um, he went to a, another studio. It's escaping me at the name that the, the, um, I don't remember the name of the studio. But he used a bunch of uh, ex Motown musicians and a group uh, called the Jazz Crusaders, and really kind of updated the sound, the arrangements. Uh, but the problem was when he, you know he when when he mixed it, he mixed Cash right out of it, and you know he did this weird thing where he recorded everybody's vocals separately and then blended them in the mixing process and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't if it didn't work you'd have to call them back in and re-record it so that it would suit and fit um and it was really tedious and i think they really resented him for it but it you know it it, it he, he really buried cast in the mix in the original uh, version of the album you can hardly even hear her you know and that's kind of like their signature sound is her vocals when she's not singing lead her vocals just kind of soaring over everybody kind of like a like a bird or a mist, you know? And um, so, uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why that album is just, is not well received. It was remixed uh, in 2016 by Universal Music as part of a compilation of like an anthology they put out. And they really uh, brought Cass's vocals uh, back up 
uh, to work kind of where they belong. And it really worked out on a, a bunch of songs uh, and kind of made them better, I thought. You know, I'm not a big fan of somebody taking somebody else's work and remixing it, but this is kind of where we are now. I mean, we got Giles Martin doing it with the Beatles and, yeah, um, you know, and uh, John's not around to do it. You know, he hasn't been around since 2001 and uh, wasn't in any kind of shape to do anything like that for a long time. So uh, they, I think whoever did it, I really don't know who it was, but I think in some songs, they it really works. Some, there are some, a couple of songs like Step Out that I, I really kind of prefer uh, the original mix, but uh, it's good to hear Cass in those songs a little bit more, you know, than, than, uh, than we did earlier, especially in a song like Snow Queen of Texas, which I think is one of, of one of their best songs it's such an underrated gem and uh to the the remix is a lot more crisp and uh it's just it's a beautiful song scott what is your ultimate goal that you hope that people will walk away with with your book uh just to be taken on kind of a wild ride and you know kind of uh <laughs> kind of you know kind of get to know those characters almost as if they're friends you know um, I remember, you know, when I, it's funny when I had to proofread the book, um, I re, you know, I read it, I read it really quickly and I'm not a fast reader, you know, I'm, I'm a decent, I'm a moderate reader, but I'm not, I kind of take it all in. I, I, I read at a good pace and I, I got through this one really quick. So I wasn't sure if it was because, you know, it's my own material, you know, and I know it or, or if it's just that kind of read. But when I was finished with it, I really kind of missed the four of them. He <laughs> was like, you know, I miss hearing about these people. This is, you know, so I really kind of hope people, I mean, listen, and they're not perfect people, especially John Phillips. I mean, there's a lot of, you're going to walk away thinking this guy is crazy, you know, and, and uh, how could he do this? But, you know, in the early days when he was a folk musician, I really, when I was writing the book, I really cheered for him. You know, it's like you really wanted him to succeed because he was really trying and, you know, he was imperfect back then, uh, but, you know, he was really trying to make a go of it. He was really super talented. And, um, you know, the same thing with Denny and Cass and, and, and Michelle. You really I, I really hope people get to walk away knowing them a little bit better, knowing the story a little bit better, because the story is just kind of uh, it's told, but it's it's told in a very general kind of way, I think. So I think this was a story that really needed. Uh, to have the layers peeled back a little bit. I think I did that. Um, and I think people are going to, and I, it's not, and it's not tedious. Uh, it's not sensationalized. I didn't sensationalize no, the story. No. And, and I applaud you for that. So, <laughs> we, I, yeah. yeah, that's not my style. And I appreciate the fact that you didn't do that either. Um, what has changed for you since the book has come out? Um, I don't know, not too much right now. You know, it's, it's, it's taking it one day at a time, you know, it's, I guess what's changed for me is like really having people, you know, uh, examine your work and, and review it and, and tell you what they think. I've gotten, I've gotten pretty good reviews so far. I got, you know, but there's always somebody who puts in something like, you know, it's like either a zinger or, um, you're like, oh boy, just for the territory. Uh, yeah, right. They, I know. Fortunately, I've had, I've had 15 years in radio to understand that. But um, you know, but there's also people who really appreciate it and and kind of get what I was what I was going for. Um, so I think to really to to be analyzed in that kind of way, it's it's interesting. It's it's um, 
it's it's scary and exciting all at the same time, <laughs> you know. So well, I want to tell everyone. I mean, first of all, the book is incredible. I couldn't put it down. Uh, I want to thank Judy Tversky, uh for uh, telling me about it. Uh, Judy, I love you and uh, keep them coming. Uh, she is the best. You you uh, are in good hands with Judy. Uh, everyone, get the book. Uh, call your favorite bookseller and ask for it. And if they don't have it on the bookshelves, ask them to get it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to give you uh, almost the final word tonight. Uh, okay. I'm going to give my final word, and then I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, give you the final word. But we're going to actually let the mamas and the papas have the final word tonight. I think that's the appropriate that's way fitting. to do it. Um, you, uh, it could be about anything that we spoke about tonight that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. Um, I, you know, I'm struck um, uh, very much about Mama Cass and her story. Uh, there have been so many legends about how she passed away, but the fact of the matter was that she had a very successful night uh, at, uh, at the Palladium in London. Uh, she finished her performance. She called Michelle, uh, and uh, later that night, uh, she died in her sleep. Um, not the rumors, and I won't even go into them. You've heard them. Uh, but she died in her sleep that night. But she got standing ovation after standing ovation after standing ovation. And I thought how appropriate that she had that experience uh, on the last night that she was on this planet. But I'm struck by something, and it takes me back to something that I say at the end of every show. Pick up the phone and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a long time because you never know when it will be the last time that you get a chance to speak with them and let them know how they've made a difference in your life. Uh, so many times uh, today I found out, you know, I've been, I'm writing a book myself, Scott. I'm writing a book on the history of Hello Dolly and all of the women who have played Dolly. And there has been a wonderful uh, gentleman. His name is Skip Koenig. And Skip, uh, uh, for the longest time, we never met, uh, but he would write to me through email. And uh, we spoke a couple of times on the phone. And he would find things on eBay. And he would say, this fills in the blanks uh, with Mary Martin on the road or Ethel Merman. And I found out today that he passed away just a few days ago. Uh, and even though we met, never met, uh, he made a difference in my life. And uh, I was very saddened to hear of his passing. <clears throat> Excuse me. So pick up the phone, call someone, not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, uh, but a phone call. And let that person know that they've made a difference in your life. I have a dear friend, and he says, we're all in this together, uh, but we're in different size boats. And I say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that, I'm going to leave the screen, and it's all yours, Scott. And Scott, I hope that you'll stay in touch. Uh, this has been great. And uh, kudos. It's, it's a great book. Thank you. It's all Thanks. yours. Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, I want to thank uh, thank you for having me on your program. You know, I kind of echo those same sentiments uh, in the back. Uh, Behind me here, you'll see a picture of Bear Bryant. Uh, he was a legendary football coach at University of Alabama where I went to college, and he always said the same thing. He said that, you know, he always told his players to call your mamas and your papas, and interestingly enough. So, um, uh, yeah, absolutely, uh, same thing. And uh, I think uh, uh, if you are into music, 
um, rock and roll in the 1950s and 1960s. You want to take a little bit of a journey, get to know uh, the inside scoop of how things are uh, were back then. I think you'll really, really enjoy my book. Uh, it's a, It was a labor of love of uh, kind of my dedication to that uh, era of music that I love so much. It's still a huge part of me. So um, uh, with that being said, check uh, check me out at scottshayauthor.com. I'll give you a link to all my socials, uh, any uh, interviews, a link to any interviews I've been. Uh, there's a blog post on there. You'll learn a little bit about me as well. So uh, appreciate it, Richard. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody enjoyed the interview.
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.